morning. Good to see everybody this morning. We have, uh, we have people traveling this week, so I thought I would give you a heads up on that. So I think most of, most of you know that Randy and Cass are not here, and uh, so they're in Mexico enjoying a well-deserved vacation, and um, so we're going to have a special guest speaker this morning by way of pre-recorded video. He is also not here. Um, his name is Dr. Michael Heiser. Um, he's actually up in heaven now enjoying a much better vacation and uh, also well-deserved. But <clears throat> he, uh, if you aren't familiar with Dr. Heiser, I think most of us are, but he he was a, a uh, academic who was specialized in ancient Near Eastern studies, uh, languages, and cultures, and he... Uh, well-versed in Hebrew and Aramaic and all those old languages. And um, so he wrote uh, a lot of books um, on those subjects, and uh, one in particular called Unseen Realm that was about the idea of the divine council and what's actually happening with, um, you know, the things that Randy has been talking about with the heavenly host. And so this morning's sermon from him or lesson is going to be about angels. And so Randy's called it a study in angels. And so we're going to be watching that video. And uh, so just want to give you a heads up on that. Instead of Randy, we're going to have Michael. And uh, other people that are traveling this week, uh, we had Davey and Edie are back with us, but they went to camp. So did you guys enjoy camp? All right, good. Uh, Charlene and I are going to take a little short trip to Kansas City after church today. We're going to be there a couple of days. Um, who else? Anybody else traveling? I think that's it. Oh, you did? All right. Did you have a good trip? Good. Nice. Good. All right. So. Oh. Awesome. Well, let's. We're going to keep all the traveling people in our prayers. Uh, Martha has tomatoes in the foyer. If you'd like some tomatoes, came out of came out of your garden, right? No, whose garden? Your niece's garden. Okay. Uh, she says they're a little green so that they can get picked before the sun rot gets to them. But uh, they'll ripen, all ripen up and they'll be great. So free tomatoes out there. I wanted to give you um, a little update. You know that I was supposed to go to Kenya, and the team that I went to Kenya with is back. But there is a second part of this group from Little Lighthouse that went to Rwanda. And um, I saw some updates today I thought you guys might enjoy and because um, they they're went to church this morning. And so I thought I would just share that. So go ahead and throw up the picture, the first picture. I don't know if you all can see that very well. That is the view from the church. It's up in the mountains in Rwanda. And they said the, the bus or the van they were in couldn't make it all the way up the mountain. They had to stop and hike 
or walk up the last two miles because the road was too rough. And uh, so I'm a little bummed. I missed out on the four-wheel drive action there. But um, I had no idea Rwanda had mountains and was beautiful. I wouldn't have been in Rwanda anyway, but it's awesome. Um, and then I just wanted to share a couple of clips of the worship that was happening at that church this morning. So go ahead and play those songs. cool seeing a church uh, worshiping this morning the same as we are and uh, just knowing that people around the world love Jesus and getting to see it happening almost in real time. I mean, they're eight hours. Actually, I think they're seven hours ahead of us, And uh, but pretty neat get to see that. Um, so be praying for the Rwanda team. They're kind of forging new paths for um, the work that Little Lighthouse does in Rwanda and um, working with kids that have special needs. There's a lot of need in Rwanda for that. And as they go, they're doing it um, and spreading the love of Jesus as they do this. So that's part of the mission of Little Lighthouse is to glorify God. It's the very first part of the mission statement of Little Lighthouse is to glorify God by serving children with special needs and their families and the communities. And so um, that's why they're doing that. So anyway, keep them in prayers and they'll be traveling back uh, I think Wednesday. So let's pray. Father God, uh, <clears throat> I just uh, thank you for Randy and for Cass and for the leadership over the years that Randy has provided for Grace Bible Church and uh, for all the um, work that he has put in to know you better, to be a, the kind of shepherd that you want him to be for this flock here. And I just thank you for the break that you have provided for him. And I pray that it'll be a good rest, that um, not only a time of physical relaxation, but also a time to just renew himself in you and to focus on you as he does that, focus on cast and the relationship will be improved and grow deeper um, and I just thank you for that time and for those who have made that possible for them I appreciate that Father I pray for safe travels for them 
and uh, for all the others who are traveling uh, this week and coming up the rest of the summer. It's the season of travel, and I just pray for safe travels. I pray for Little Lighthouse team that's in Rwanda. I pray that um, they will find the right people to make connections with, to make the presentations to, and give the education to, to be able to, to help the kids there that need the help that um, they can provide. I pray for safe travels for them on their way home. Father, I pray for the service this morning, uh, even though it's a little different. Um, your people are gathered here, and we know that you're here with us. We know that your heavenly host is watching and surrounding us. Father, I, I thank you that we're going to get to learn more about that this morning, and I just pray that it'll be a great time message for us and um, help us learn a lot and to take it to heart to understand what Dr. Heiser is saying and to uh, get come away with a better understanding of angels and uh, what that means for our lives. Thank you for all you do for us. Thank you for Grace Bible Church. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.
visions beam afar. Seek the great desire of nations. Ye have seen his natal star. Come and worship, come and worship, worship Christ the newborn King. Worship him. Saints before get the question of why should we care about angels or angelology and you know all this sort of heavenly other beings talk I'll admit that in my Bible college experience and seminary experience we spent literally this is not an exaggeration one clock hour the whole time in all those years on this subject so I thought at the time, even as a student and a serious student, because I knew at some point I'm going to go on for graduate school and get a PhD, I just thought, well, this can't really be important because my professor didn't assign any importance to it. Otherwise, you would spend more than one hour. I think a lot differently now. Um, I would answer the question this way, that whether we realize it or not, and most people don't, because again, this is sort of a topic that lives on the periphery, unfortunately. The way that the Bible talks about the members of the heavenly host, God's heavenly family, his heavenly partners, serves as a template for the way God thinks about and talks about us as believers, as his earthly family and his earthly partners. There's a lot of intentional, deliberate messaging that sort of creates this symbiotic relationship. You know, we're familiar with the phrase, as in heaven, so on earth. Well, there's a lot to that when it comes to the heavenly host, you know, what we would refer to as angels and the human family of God. And that's really missed in scripture. And it, that might sound like a point of trivia, but it actually plays into a number of theological threads in really significant ways. The, the, the big payoff for paying attention to the heavenly host is that if we have what I call the divine council worldview in our heads, we will come to realize when we get to the book of Revelation and even earlier chapters like Hebrews chapter 12, that human believers, the human family of God, actually forms the reconstituted, made new council of God. When we think about glorification, you know, the evangelicals like to use the word glorification. Other traditions use the word theosis or exaltation or something like that. 
human believers in their final state are made like Jesus, yes, but we become fit for sacred space in the, in the most ultimate sort of way. We, as human beings, created lesser than the Elohim, Psalm 8. Hebrews has lesser than the angels, lower than the angels. We are actually elevated to that position to occupy that status rank and form a, a newly constituted council for God, council with God, to enjoy creation and to you know, manage it, do whatever God wants done in the final state. God gets his way with a restored Eden, and we are his glorified family, along with the members of the heavenly host who remain loyal to him. So we have a functional sort of corporate family partnership model going on here. And at the end of days, that's what we are, and that's our status. Our condition now is kind of an interesting one because on the one hand, you know, we can see that, well, we ain't there yet. We're not in the new Eden. You know, we live in a fallen world. And the struggles that we have, the presence of evil, the, you know, temptation, suffering, all of these things are due to rebellion. And scripture teaches us that very early on in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we have a series of three, both human and supernatural rebellions that create the circumstances for life as we know it now. But what's interesting, the New Testament uh, has something that theologians call the already but not yet sort of thread running through it. And it's actually a lot of threads. It's the same idea, but it travels on different trajectories. So God looks at us, those who are redeemed, those who are in Christ, as already being restored to the status that he wants to someday give us. So there's this already but not yet thing going on. So I think it's helpful to keep that in mind, uh, how God looks at us and what our ultimate destiny is, that someday God's thought about us will actually be our realized destiny. I was fortunate to grow up in a church that took scripture really seriously. And because of that, because we were taught um, biblical data and really, you know, biblical theology. Uh, I never really had a, a much of a struggle with identity and mission, but a lot of Christians today really struggle with that. They don't really realize who they are. In other words, how God looks at them. There's this struggle with performance still. You know, am I good enough? Even if they hear the gospel, they say they believe the gospel, it somehow mentally it reverts back to is God as happy with me today as he was 10 years ago or something like that? So it really creates a struggle with identity and it creates a struggle with why are we here? You know, what's our mission? So if I can get people's attention back in a correct way on those two things through the door, the back door of angelology, the heavenly host, you know, how God sort of, and the Bible maps that talk about them over to us and gives us sort of a more cosmic feel about our destiny, who we are and what we're supposed to do, that's a good thing. And I think if we do pay attention to that, we will be reawakened to how God does look at us, again, as his family, as his partners, and ultimately as his reconstituted council. When I typically get invited somewhere to talk about angels, I'll usually begin with a statement that sounds like something like this, that, hey, you know, what Christians think they know about angels is largely filtered or mediated to us through tradition. 
Now, I don't want people to come away with the thought from that statement that everything we believe about angels isn't biblical. I mean, you know, we have a lot of biblical data that is very discernible from the English Bible about angels, and so we, you know, we have a reasonably sure footing. But the reality is there are significant things that sort of get taught about angels, either in church or kind of in Christian discussion or popular books, that really can't be well tethered to what the Bible actually says. And so in my book, Angels, the, the subtitle is deliberate, you know, what the Bible really says about the members of the heavenly host, you know, God's heavenly host. Because there is a disconnection, again, between those who really sort of burrow into the text of Scripture and the way angels are sort of popularly discussed. Cherubim and seraphim are words that most English Bible readers are going to be familiar with because they're transliterated, they're not translated. So they appear in the English Bible sort of, you know, for what they are. And we sort of don't stop to think about these two as job descriptions. Again, we're not tuned into the nuancing of vocabulary, which is really why I, I jump into it right away in the book. This is actually where we get the idea that angels have wings because cherubim have wings and seraphim have wings and they're all just angels anyway. In other words, we smash all the terms together and that gives rise to this myth about angels having wings. But the idea comes from the notion, the, the reality that angels come from above, they're from God and God lives in the heavens. Well, how would you get from the heavens to the earth? Well, you must fly and you need wings to fly. I mean, there's a whole bunch of extrapolations here. Uh, even though scripture actually never attributes wings to angels. In fact, in the Old Testament especially, and in the New, when you see angels, there's only two occasions where anything about them is visually different than a normal human. Uh, when, when the book of Hebrews talks about, hey, you know, you need to extend hospitality to people because you might entertain angels unawares. Well, if they have wings sticking out of their back, I mean, how could you miss that? So you go back to the Old Testament, that, that statement in Hebrews is building off Old Testament incidents, like in Genesis 19, where angels are on the scene, but Lot, in that case, doesn't know that they're any different than just normal guys until they do something that people can't, like strike the city blind, all right? That gives you an indication that we're dealing with more than just a couple of guys here. But visually, he isn't led to think anything different about them, and that's the pattern the consistent pattern uh, in the Bible. It's only when they do something really unusual um, that people get sort of clued in to this is, just isn't a normal man here in front of me. This is, this is something different. You know, is there any harm, okay, in depicting angels with wings? You know, I'm not, I'm not advocating that we storm churches and tear religious art, you know, that have, has depiction of angels with wings out of the church and burn them. You know, it's, I'm not advocating for anything ridiculous like that. I really don't think there's, you know, technically any harm. It, it is imprecise, but it raises the question of, well, again, why, what's the point? And there are a couple of points. It, just in antiquity generally, this is why heavenly figures or sinister, demonic figures often get depicted the way they do. Uh, giving uh, an angel wings just really describes 
their point of origin. They're from the heavens. Again, this notion of, well, to, to get here, they, they have to fly because we see birds. And it, it just it communicates the idea that they're from up there or they're from a place where humans can't get to or humans don't live. And it works the flip side as well. You know, you, you have ancient iconography of, uh, like in Mesopotamia, demonic beings like the Apkalu. They are depicted at, at, at times with wings or at other times as sort of fish people. Well, why? What, I mean, especially we, those, those two things don't go together because, you know, fish, wings, you know, birds, you know. Why do they do that? It's to communicate that these beings are from places that humans do not inhabit. It, it's a way of communicating their otherness. So humans can't live in the sea, but the gods can. You know, non-human creatures can. Humans don't live in the sky. Well, the gods do. You know, heavenly beings do. So this is sort of what the artistic representation is trying to get across. Uh, really, otherness is the main point. I often get asked in interviews why a book on angels, and sort of my whimsical but still honest answer is, it's really typical when we talk about uh, the supernatural worldview of the Bible that the bad guys get all the press. I mean, everybody's interested in demons, you know, because of Hollywood and, and, and whatnot. They just seem to get more attention than they probably do. So I thought it would be a great idea to actually have a book that tethers what we say about angels to the text instead of tradition, sort of weed the tradition out and just focus on scripture. And also, it's about time that the good guys get some focus. Uh, that they get some stage time. So what we want to do here is give them their due and focus on the good guys and not the bad ones. You know, God doesn't need any assistance or anyone to do any tasks, but God does this, again, with the beings he has created. He makes them partners and they have functions uh, to, you know, do what God wants done on his behalf in conjunction with him. And this is one of those roles. So there are a number of these terms in the Old Testament that, des that describe what a member of the heavenly host might do on any given occasion. It is important to know that the terminology is quite varied and quite diverse and again fits in these three buckets, what a thing is, where a thing ranks, what a thing does, okay? So that's important often because of the rebellions, because some of those terms, those, those members of the heavenly host that had a particular job, they're going to lose that job and then they're going to get something else. They're going to be referred to as something else, and that'll matter later on in the Bible in some passage. For the good guys, there will be terminology that, interestingly enough, stops in the New Testament with the supernatural members of the heavenly host and actually gets transferred to human believers. So it, it's kind of significant to pay attention to the vocabulary because it will help us get a, a fuller sense of something later on, especially when it comes to ourselves, again, how God looks at, at humans, because there's this symbiotic relationship between God's heavenly family and his heavenly partners and God's earthly family and his earthly partners. Those two things are connected in several ways by terminology. And it's often obscured in our English Bibles, and we sort of miss the theology that arises from that. Let's start with the Hebrew term ruach, spirit. 
Again, this is a term that belongs in that first bucket, terms that tell you what a member of the heavenly host is by nature. They are spiritual beings. They don't have bodies like we do. Another one would be the Hebrew word malach. This is where we get angel because malach is a messenger. That's what the term means. And so in English Bibles, it will get translated messenger, typically when they're human or when the translator thinks they're human. And when they're not human, English translators typically opt for angel because that's familiar to us in our vocabulary. But at the end of the day, that is a bucket number three term. That's a job description. It tells you what a thing does. Another example of a bucket one uh, term would be shemayim. This is the Hebrew word for heavens or heavenly ones. Now, this is, like, this is actually kind of interesting because... There are passages in the Old Testament that typically in English Bibles would get translated as heavens, like the sky, the place. You can, and some scholars do in certain passages, translate that instead as heavenly ones, okay, to sort of make it animate or make it like a personal being. And that's legitimate. So as you're reading your English Bible, sometimes you'll want to pay attention to how an English translator will treat that term. And just to know that, you know, in some cases, you might actually have heavenly ones pointing to figures or entities as opposed to just the sky. Job 38, 7 and 8 is an important passage because it's a pretty clear instance of using the way that Old Testament writers, and this, again, they're part of the ancient Near Eastern culture uh, generally, they would use the language of astronomy or celestial language, stellar language, for members of the heavenly host. For instance, in Job 38, 7 and 8, we have the sons of God, again, heavenly beings of you know, considerable rank, also described as the stars of God. And this isn't the only place in Scripture this happens. And you say, well, why would... I mean, that's just kind of weird. We know that stars are balls of gas and, and, and things like that. Well, it... Again, the passage isn't trying to undo science or do bad science. That isn't the point. The point is, again, that God up there in the heavens where God lives. And again, we, we imagine God living in the heavens for a number of reasons, a number of passages in the Bible. But God is up there, and so his servants, his spirit being servants, also are up there. And so to talk about them, biblical writers will use the analogy of stars and celestial objects in the sky. You know, they don't have telescopes. They don't have modern science. This is just a convenience, a convenient way of talking about them up there with God who are in service to him and sometimes are in service to us. There are passages that really take the, the astronomical language and sort of animate it or, or make the stars alive, you know, while they're doing so. I think the most familiar connection here is apocalyptic language, you know, falling stars, stones of fire, you know, the, this, this cataclysmic-like language. And we're prone to literalize that and say, oh, at the, the time of the end, you know, like the heavens are just going to like go, you know, freak out. We're going to get asteroid storms here and stuff. That really isn't the point. The point is that in the end of time, God is going to judge the spiritual world as well as the earthly world. An ancient person, including, you know, Israelites, especially if they're not, you know, sort of 
theological thinkers, just the average Joe, okay, the average Joe Benchmo or whatever, you know, Israelite. Yeah, it's very possible that they could look up in the skies, and especially when stars move or they see an object move, like a, like a meteor or a comet. It's very possible they could look at that, and without the, the scientific knowledge we have, think, well, that's alive because it moves. Living things move. And so they, they could you know, use the language and interpret the language of Scripture that way. It doesn't have to be interpreted that way, but that's entirely possible. Ultimately, the, the star language is a really useful metaphor. We, unfortunately, are not used to reading Scripture and really even thinking about language in ways other than literalness. Again, whatever even that term means. You know, this one-to-one -one correspondence, I see a term, the first thing that pops into my head, that's what it means. And usually the first thing that pops into your head is sort of the physicalized meaning of a particular word. Uh, it's really unfortunate because it's actually a, a very useful metaphor. And, and the biblical writers do this all the time. Uh, Leviathan, the beast of the sea, that was a well-known metaphor for chaos, because the sea is a frightening place, you can't live in it. Things in the natural world become useful for conveying ideas, abstract ideas. And the stellar language of Scripture is another one of these. Again, useful for conveying the fact that God isn't alone up there. He has living beings up there with him, and God is acting and active. Another term we could talk about is kedoshim. This is a plural term. It just means holy ones. And it's typically used in the plural as sort of a collective. So if you are a member of the heavenly host and you're not in rebellion, <laughs> you are a holy one and collectively you are the holy ones. Now, we have to remember that holiness doesn't necessarily and, and really doesn't, I would say, almost at all, very, very unusual it would be to have that term refer to moral perfection. And there's only one perfect being, and that's God. God is the standard, therefore, for holiness. What the term actually means is set apart, uh, separated, sacred, assigned to God's use. Okay, and this is what they are, if you really think about it. God has created beings in the spiritual world who are to serve him. They are set apart for his service. And so Holy Ones is a way of expressing that idea. Again, not canceling out the possibility because they are less than God. It doesn't cancel out the possibility that they could fail and that they could do wrong. We know from scripture that there are members of the heavenly host who do fail, who do rebel. So the term Holy Ones doesn't cancel that out talking about spiritual beings in the Bible, and we've looked at how God is in the heavenly realms, but not by himself. There's a whole staff team that the Bible calls the divine council. But in the Bible, there are still more beings in the spiritual realm, like the cherubim and also the angels. So let's talk about them. Okay, first, the cherubim. These are chubby little babies with wings, right? No, you got to get that image out of your head. Cherubim, or in Hebrew, cherubim, they're way more fascinating. They're described as hybrid creatures, a collage of different animals, and every time they do appear, they look a little bit different. That's intense. Yeah, they're supposed to be intimidating. They stand guard at the boundary between heaven and earth. If you see them, you know you're entering the presence of the one who is above all and truly other. 
The first time cherubim show up in the story of the Bible, they're standing outside of the Garden of Eden. Right. The Garden is God's temple residence, and so he places these spiritual bodyguards at the entrance so that the rebel humans can't get back in and ruin everything. But the biblical story is about how God wants us back in his presence. Yes, exactly. So this is why he chose the people of Israel and gave them the gift of a symbolic miniature Eden called the tabernacle, and then later the Jerusalem temple. In both of these spaces, cherubim were painted and engraved all over, reminding the priests that they are working in God's presence. Now, if a priest went into the Holy of Holies, he would see there a golden box called the Ark of the Covenant, and on it were two cherubim. What's going on here? Well, the biblical authors describe the ark as the footstool of God's throne, which the cherubim are carrying. Like we read in Psalm 99, God sits enthroned above the cherubim. But there was no actual throne above the box. Right. The Israelites weren't supposed to represent God with any physical image. But when the prophets had visions about this space, they saw Yahweh sitting on his throne. Okay, so cherubim guard the sacred space, carry God's throne, but why do they look like animal mashups? Well, they're symbolic representations of all the creatures of the earth because they all belong to God. This is why in Isaiah's vision, all of the creatures are singing. Everything that fills the earth is God's glory. Like a choir. Yeah, through the cherubim, all creation offers praise to its maker. Great, that's the cherubim. Now let's talk about angels. I'm way more familiar with them, human-like figures with feathery wings. No, wait, stop. Angels in the Bible don't have wings. What? No wings? No angel wings. In fact, angels are often mistaken for people because they look like us. Just a bit more impressive. But the cherubim have wings. Yeah, and the angels are different because they have a different purpose. Okay, which is? Well, humans can't just march into God's realm. So God will reach out to us, and he often does so through these spiritual ambassadors. So angels are like spiritual messengers. Yeah, in fact, that's what the word angel means, a messenger. Right, this happens a lot in the Bible, like the angel who tells Mary she's pregnant with Jesus. Yeah, and then the other main role of angels is to perform missions on God's behalf. Sometimes they rescue people from danger, like when Peter is released from prison. And there's some really cool angels, like Michael and Gabriel. Yeah, the name Gabriel means God is my power. And Michael means who is like God. But also notice, these names point to God, not to the angels. Like humans, the angels are images of God's presence and power. But still, how cool would it be to meet an angel? Yeah, and maybe you will, and maybe you already have. But no one in the Bible is ever encouraged to go looking for angels. And when angels do show up, people are usually puzzled or freaked out. So angels are really awesome, but they play a supporting role in the Bible. Yes, because God's ultimate purpose is to bring humans back into his presence in a reunited heaven and earth. And in the meantime, he uses angels to guide and to serve his people.
now to the one who is able to keep you from falling and to cause you to stand rejoicing without blemish before his glorious presence. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time and now and for all eternity. Amen. Have a great day.